adoption isn't just from a childhood or you know 20 years ago or 10 years ago when the book came out or whenever it's like we have to understand it across our life course i think every human being has something if they are they can find uh, support from just one friend one person that is very special to them they can keep hope i didn't know all this stuff happened and then we put the call out and i think none of us had any idea My name is Indigo Willing. I have a PhD in sociology. My pronouns are she, her. I live in Australia on the land of the Turrbal and Yegara peoples um, on unceded land, recognizing that their sovereignty was never ceded. And I'm a Vietnamese adoptee and one of the chapter authors in Outsiders Within. Uh, my name is Timora uh, Piol Nathalie Lemoine, uh, also known as Cho Mi Hi or Nathalie Lemoine. I'm a Korean adoptee from the first wave in Belgium. And uh, I am. I was a returnee from 1993 to 2006 uh, to Korea, and now I live in Montreal. Hello, my name is Jane Tranka. I am a Korean adoptee. I live in Seoul. I was adopted to Minnesota in 1972. In Korea right now, I'm an insurance agent. It's great fun. Okay, how many people in the chat room? And that's Julia. She's my daughter that I'm raising here. I just want to say thank you, Kamira, for laying the, so much groundwork in Korea for adoptees to be here. So I remember you were telling me the earliest, some of the earliest um, adoptees who returned to Korea when you were here in 93 experienced so much hardship because you had to go back and forth because there wasn't a proper visa for us. And I remember you telling me that at that time you you guys had no money and you were using paper plates and eating bungopang, eating like fried street food, like this bread with um, beans inside of it. Can can you tell tell us more about like kind of like the early days? The early days were uh, like uh, as uh, as a European Korean adoptee, which is very different from uh, I think uh, American or Australian Korean adoptees, uh, because uh, most of us who've been adopted in Europe were in a non-English speaking uh, country, except England, but not many English Korean adoptees were coming back at the time, and also the the British accent was not uh, well um, received in uh, Korea because uh, I think Korea is uh, colonized by, um, by America. For me as a Francophone uh, adoptee, not knowing English at the time, not being good in language anyway, uh, having to learn Korean again. I met the first Korean adoptee from Sweden when I was taking class at uh, EY University or Sogang University which were adoptees would need to learn the language to be able to function in the Korean society. So that's how we first met. In the beginning, I met more European adoptees, so we were all kind of speaking English, but for me, uh, as a non-English speaker and not being good in language again, I went by and in the same time I was learning Korean, I had to learn English to learn Korean also, so it was two languages in the same time. People who were returning at the time knew that we could have only three months as a normal tourist visa. Uh, so uh, we had to plan studying. I mean, we were not all adopted in rich families and 
even if we were, we were not especially supported or, uh, by our adoptive parents. Not many Korean people knew that we want to return to our birth country. What the heck do you want to come back to Korea? It's a poor country. Uh, you're so lucky to be adopted by white people in the Western society. So they didn't understand why we want to return and connect with our birth land. As I think it was a difference between female adoptees and male adoptees coming back to Korea, uh, knowing that Korea is not very feminist country. So it's like also being a, a woman in Korea were kind of, uh, we were losing our uh, freedom from the West versus Korean adoptees male were like embracing Korea because for the first time they were sexualized. They were like upgrade in the society because they were the king of the society. So, so I think the experience of being different also like not the majority after, I think in the mid nineties, like 96, 97, Many more adoptees first from Minnesota came because uh, Crystal Chapel were like advertising that it was an association in Korea, which was my first association in Korea. I was the connection. So I would start to meet more Korean Americans who were coming in Korea to teach English, often to pay their school debt or university debt, which Europeans don't have that. So it was a very different motivation to come uh, in Korea. I didn't know the different, the cultural difference. So I learned a lot about America because of Korean adoptees from America. And it was for me uh, very interesting to see the tendency from one culture, how much adoptees from Korea absorbed so well their adoptive culture, of course, and the differences and mentalities and so it started to be some little fight between adoptees from France versus Belgium, Francophone, Anglophone, and it's like a little micro world with all adoptees from coming back to Korea. So the platform and the uh, reuniting land was sold of, uh, often. And so that's where we, we had our first meeting, our first fight, our first acknowledgement that we need more rights not only for storage, but also to stay in Korea. Thank you, Kimura. That's really so fascinating. And um, it's like little, little micro, microcosm is a um, fascinating place to be, I think. So you did so much work in community and Indigo. I think you've also done a lot of work in community as well. Would you like to add to that? So the Vietnamese adoptee community really began to come together as a collective um, across oceans around 2000 because it was the um, anniversary, the 25th anniversary of the Vietnam War and people were holding quite a lot of reunions and this included adoption agencies who um, have not always been very supportive of adoptees and we can talk about maybe the relationship to adoption agencies later. But because there were these reunions happening to celebrate <laughs> or commemorate, depending on how you look at it, um, the end of the Vietnam War and these waves of Vietnamese children being moved from Vietnam to various Western countries, it was very easy in some ways to find each other on the internet. Uh, prior to that, it was sort of like we were doing our own thing and a lot of people were isolated and there were a lot of struggles with identity or you know, how to find relatives and so on. 
but just having the internet grow the way that it had and having these reunions that were happening, we found each other across oceans. So whether you're in France or you were in the United States, Canada, um, Eritrea, New Zealand or Australia, it was quite a movement to connect and a really revelatory moment, like a real revelation that was almost cathartic for many of us because of the nature of how we'd been raised, uh, isolated from other Vietnamese people and other Vietnamese adoptees often. There was this really deep, deep need to just see, be seen, <laughs> be seen and feel normalised, you know, sort of not being the different one in your family and society and within Vietnamese communities even. So around 2000 was when we started, I guess, connecting. And then over the years, it's been uh, an interesting journey, maybe following a lot in the footsteps of the things that Korean adoptees have set up. And we're very grateful for the pathways that the Korean adoptee organizers, activists, writers, and so on have been paving to give us examples of how to adapt that to our own communities. We'll never be like Korean adoptees identically. We've got similar military histories, similar, you know, sort of diasporas and experiences of racism, but of course we've also got our unique our uniqueness about our communities. So it's been such a lovely way connecting, say, with outsiders within with the book to not just Korean adoptees, but other transracial and transnational adoptees to try and find out what's possible to do with our voices. You know, we've got a lot to say, we've got a lot of stories to tell, we've got a lot of brain power now. You know, we're no longer just you know, being invited to talk about our lived experiences. We have people that are in research, that are authors, are filmmakers. But you're really just knowing what the potential is for our community to give voice and, again, you know, make, make space and share resources with other adoptee communities. So I realize when we're recording this, we're talking about the years, like, from the 90s until the early 2000s, which doesn't, to me, seem very long ago. <laughs> it doesn't seem that long ago, but... I'm teaching some university students right now in Korea, and I realize, so they kind of complain to me about their other classes and how the professors have chosen texts from like the 1990s. Like they, they, like they can't believe they have to read anything so old or they have to view anything so old. So like I kind of had a shock. I mean, you, you're teaching, right, Indigo? So the students of this, I mean, like it's really ancient history, like what we're talking about. Like to them, this is ancient yeah, my, my students were born after 2000, mostly. They make jokes about 2010, like that's so 2010, because they were 10. So I feel like maybe this kind of, kind of underscores the importance of archiving and doing this because, you know, maybe, maybe we've lost our coolness now, but 100 years from now, maybe somebody will think it's cool. <laughs> I think uh, maybe uh, your children will not. Uh, think about uh, your history and how you came into uh, that land. And I think it's uh, the uh, next generation who going to take care of our memory and uh, bring along the, uh, in the future. Yeah, perhaps. Also, do you know, you know Alice and Sungyeok from the Netherlands? Did you meet them, Kimura? No. So they lived in Korea. They were both adopted to the Netherlands and they lived in Korea for some years and they had three children already when they came to Korea. And so the children all spent some time in Korea and then they went back. And I knew them when they were little kids. And recently their eldest son came back to Korea because um, 
he did an exchange program at Korea University, and then after that, he's he was studying at a Dutch university. But COVID, so he was taking all his classes online anyway. So he just decided to stay in Korea and enjoy the food and take his classes online. It's very interesting. He's decided to become a historian, and he's interested in Korean adoption. So he's such an amazing, unique person because he kept up his Korean language. So he went to school here, to public school in Korea for a while, and then he went back to the Netherlands, and he, he continued watching Korean media and so forth, and he kept up his language. And then he comes to Korea, and he can completely go to Korean university in Korean language. It's so amazing. I think also, like, I would, I mean, your children, because I don't have, but uh, your children don't have the trauma that you had. Maybe you pass on in some ways. But also they don't have this trauma that we have and how uh, we cannot be just uh, neutral on the history. It's like something that is, I think, w whether we want to uh, admit or not, is kind of emotional. And uh, I think what is maybe more specific to Korea, which I think is a bit different with Vietnamese, if uh, I want to talk, uh, because we, we have different backgrounds, it's like many uh, adoptees from Korea were how do you say, plenière, adoption plenière, fully adopted, like with the secret and lies. But uh, Vietnamese uh, maybe had more open adoption. You had some information sometimes from your background. Some had, some not. The adoptees from Vietnam had more information than the Korean adoptees. Yeah, I mean, Viet Vietnam is a very different socially and culturally a very different place to some of the other places where they have adoption. It was at a time where there wasn't much infrastructure. The majority of um, adoptions that I can speak about, meaning the Vietnam War adoptions, um, a lot of the documents are questionable because of the rush of trying to evacuate people, not just adoptees, but trying to evacuate uh, South Vietnamese citizens from the South during what was essentially a, like a, you know, a civil conflict as well as an international one. There are bits and pieces of information that some people had, and then they're finding out sometimes that that information might have been manufactured by the um, people that uh, oversaw their evacuations and their adoptions. Um, there's only been one case where an adoptee, Vietnamese adoptee, successfully been reunited with their parents who found them and said that their adoption was illegal from the war generation. But after that, yeah, the information is beginning to be a an obligation through the Hague. Vietnam is signed to the Hague and. Um, at the same time, we know that the laws around that can be very, very tricky. So, for instance, um, having a signed, signed consent from the parents, and we don't know what sort of coercion might exist behind that. Once the parents decide to give the child um, over to adoption processes, they have 30 days to change their mind. But we also know in, in uh, a Western context that, you know, one month to get over post-maternal, you know, sort of issues and depression may be very, very much longer than that. So there's all sorts of questions we need to ask. And if a child goes for adoption, the police are obligated to search for the parents for a certain amount of time. But if they can't be found, then it's up to the adoption, the orphanage, uh, people that are running the orphanage to decide that. And again, you know, it's, it's, I think it starts at $30,000 to adopt a child through the US, which is a, you know, an enormous amount of money uh, in comparison to Vietnamese, uh, you know, the Vietnamese economy. So there's all sorts of questions that we, we cover in the book. Of course, but it, you know, adoption's open to a lot of complications, including trafficking and including just um, 
mistakes being made over children's identities during the war as well. I think that's something that we all connect within that Outsiders Within book, though, is that that search for identity, which is now, you know, it's a legal expectation. So it really is a search for justice, migration, identity, <laughs> all these sorts of things. And I think with, um, at least with Vietnamese adoptees now, something that's been very interesting is this uh, connection to Vietnamese adoptees, to the Vietnamese diaspora refugees has been becoming stronger and stronger over the years particularly in terms of citizenship and Vietnamese adoptees and Vietnamese Americans being deported in really ways that would just make your jaw drop uh, and connecting with people that are doing adoptee citizenship rights and also over the the spate or the the wave of um, racism towards Asians in Western countries. It's in Australia, but it's it's very intensified over in America right now. And that, um, yeah, the Vietnamese diaspora and the Vietnamese adoptees are realizing that, you know, they, they share a lot of challenges that by connecting with each other, it's uh, both strengthening and healing at the same time. Yeah, increasingly, I think Vietnamese adoptions are shaped by a war experience because it's, it's almost 50 years ago now, but that was the main event of adoptions there. And the, the younger generation, there's some really important conversations that we're yet to have and hear more about about what their experience is as younger adoptees leaving, not in wartime, but leaving when it's peacetime in Vietnam. But the war lingers very strongly for Vietnamese in the West, that it, it sort of shapes all relationships with them as an adoptee or whoever you are. If you want to connect with Vietnamese community overseas, it will still be shaped heavily by their feelings towards the war, if that makes sense. So really interesting dynamics and community shifts over the years since we did that book as well, even. Indigo, did you see that the Al Jazeera film? You can probably describe it better than I can, but she did. She has that moment with the guy who, the American guy who was in Saigon at the time Saigon fell. And he talks about how the, the babies from Operation Baby Lift were used, as he says, a fig leaf to get out the, um, the Vietnamese people that the United States wanted to get out. You, you saw that. Can can you talk about that? No, I can't actually. I haven't. I haven't seen that film. I know that Kathleen Turner, a Vietnamese adoptee, made that, and she's in a. There are a lot of Vietnamese adoptees now that are cultural producers of our knowledge in films, in books, and so on. Um, but there's very interesting politics around the Vietnamese adoptions. Uh, for instance, at a time in Australia where I'm from, the leader of the country, the prime minister, who's similar to a president was very anti-refugees. He was very racist and he actually is quoted in newspapers saying, I don't want these slanty-eyed bastards coming to our shores. But having the photo opportunity to be photographed with incoming baby lift children, the cute, um, sitting on his lap, he agreed to that. So it's a very sort of um, interesting way to look at the selective relationship that a white colonised nation has with adoptees. You know, they, they are very easily used in for particular agendas in ways that, you know, adults aren't. So it always raises some really interesting questions about why it was approved, these mass evacuations of children. And we know in the UK, for instance, the Daily Mail, actually a newspaper arranged to have, they wanted 100 children for a newspaper story. And they took some children that were not orphans in that airlift. So if we look from country to country with Vietnamese adoptees, um, and their removal from Vietnam, uh, in some cases, it's, it's genuine evacuation and they are all part of the refugee generation, uh, whether forced migration or, or, or voluntary. 
they're still refugees, but um, the situations of how they're removed and sometimes is very manipulated for media or for politics, which is, um, again, just raises interesting questions on what we can learn from that. For instance, if we look at countries like Haiti and, you know, events like that, again, where you have, you know, a lot of media attention towards the so-called rescue of these children and then really um, enormous questions we have to ask about the ethics of that. I look forward to seeing more documentaries made by Vietnamese adoptees about our history. You're such a good scholar that way. You're like, oh, that raises interesting questions. Whereas, like, I'm just like ready to start day drinking right now when you talk about it. <laughs> like, it's, like, makes me so angry. Is it is it similar to? I mean, my one of my greatest awaken awakening moments it was a really good moment. Anyway, um, was watching first person plural with a Vietnamese family who had adopted a Vietnamese child. And um, they said, you know, really, you should see this. And at the time, I was like, why would I want to watch something about Korean adoptees and Vietnamese? And we're not all the same, <laughs> you know, because you've got like, racism, thinking, you know, like, Asia's a big place with different nations. But then upon being exposed to that kind of documentary making about the adoption experience, regardless of where from Asia or wherever you're from, it was, it was very influential and just made a huge impact on me and then seeing films like Tammy Chu's Resilience again um, sort of understanding that uh, it's not just an intellectual or political phenomenon that we're thinking about it's deeply emotional it's deeply felt at the micro level you know it's felt through our bodies it's felt through our health like the number of um, you know uh, medical conditions and all sorts of traumas that we could link uh, psychological conditions that you know we're carrying the burden from that sort of experience is um, beautifully explored in documentaries, it's stunningly explored that it really reaches us and thinks, okay, it's um, at a political level and you can fix the laws, maybe you can put on these safeguards, but then also there's the lived experience of being an adoptee as well and um, the, the need to create spaces for healing and for voice is critical. When you watch these sort of films, you think, my gosh, you know, like, um, event, you know, adoption is not a singular event, it goes across your life course. And so watching those films and the sequels that people make to those films is amazing. And that's, I think, what Outsiders Within does. It opens up that conversation to say, you know, adoption isn't just from a childhood or, you know, 20 years ago or 10 years ago when the book came out or whenever. It's like we have to understand it across our life course. And it's very, very important to look at those uh, contributions from the book and think, my gosh, you know, like at that time now, this is how people were experiencing it. And we have the beauty now of also catching up and thinking, okay, this is what uh, has manifested since then, both positive and negative for those people and those communities as well. Thank you for saying that. I, I feel very uh, validated in having emotions about it. <laughs> Thank you. Tamira, you have done so much work and so much of it has been about exploring identity. Yeah, so I felt, I felt like that was a good segue to talk about <laughs> all of your artistic output. <laughs> But, but for me, it was interesting because uh, I, I, I think I had two, uh, two images, two uh, artwork. And uh, I thought, uh, and because maybe I'm a Francophone or something, that my poetry was not taken in the book. But because my, my poetry uh, in uh, French translated into English is maybe not the same. I don't know. <laughs> but anyway, so for me, it was interesting. And um, I made my first film. Uh, 32 years ago now, when I was 20, and it was about adoption. And I, I don't know why, but I keep continuing doing art 
in relation to adoption, interracial adoption, feminism, forced displacement, diaspora identities with the S. Like, um, but I think I unlayered my own identity and it helped me to go through my art body of work. I would not say especially art because for me it's more, I, I really enjoy making my, my work even Maybe people don't care a shit, but it's okay <laughs> for me. It's like as long as I can do it, and I'm very privileged, and I know that that um, I I, I chose this voice of uh, not uh, being an academic because I think my neuro differences can uh, not make me study properly. But I I found my my own path, and I think uh, I'm happy with that. And I, in different ways, I can share what I think about adoption, what I think about race, what I think about colorism, what I think about gender. Some uh, art critic will say, "Oh, but you talk about you." I say, "Yeah, I talk about me and two hundred thousand people also, at least, not counting adoptees, uh, adoptive parents, adverse families who are connected with that. So it's about a million people." And I think that kind of public is already big for me. It's enough for me, I think. And uh, I, of course, I don't uh, reach everyone on everything. But I think some people who see some part of my work can relate to that because it's not just about adoption. And it's just about uh, human experience. And um, I think everybody got trauma in different levels, different ways. The loss of a land, of a language, of food, or something, it's like everybody can relate it in some ways. And I grew up in the 80s, so 80s is like video clip, you know, MTV, and uh, everything has to be so fast, and it was no internet, so it was a different way to communicate. And I think my artwork is all about that, is to communicate within one minute, you need to understand the concept when it's video. There is a say in French, they say, les plus courts sont les meilleurs, means the, the shortest joke at the best. So for me, it's, it's not especially a joke, but sometimes I, I use a Belgian humor, which is very specific to Belgian and not French, not other. And it's a kind of a sarcastic humor that I use in my work. And of course, maybe some translation cannot translate that uh, with the cultural re references. Also, the fact that my... Adoptive mother was Flemish and not francophone, living in Belgium, being from a, a divided country, uh, South Korea, North Korea, then Belgium divided by language Flemish, francophone, and then uh, moving to uh, Canada with anglophone, francophone. I think I'm just uh, so uh, glued to that, to that kind of trauma of separation of differences. And I guess now I'm 50 and so more than half a century and I'm still there. So I, I guess it's something there. And uh, I wonder what is just to make art without the label of being POC, being LGBT, being adopted, being overseas adopted, being diaspora. What, what is left anyway? It's like I think the time will, will tell, I guess. For me, it's just, a, it's just a way to survive, I think, making art. It's like, and of course, we can decide to commit suicide or not live. There is no reason to live. But I think every human being has something. If they, are, they can find uh, support from just one friend, one person that is very special to them, they can keep the light, they can keep hope. And I think it's very important. And I think that book, 
can talk to so many people also. And the fact that it's different voices and not just Korean adoptees, I think that's very important and people can relate the same kind of trauma to that book or like question or like experience. So I think anthologies are very important for the memory of the community or communities. And I, I just want to sort of like fawn a little bit over Camaro because I, I appreciate you so much. And just like the things that you have mentioned about like the joy that you have in your artwork. I feel like you've just seen everything. Like in Korea, you just saw everything. And you've gone through so much trauma in your life. I remember that you ran away from home when you were 14. Uh, 13. 13. And you had the experience of being neurodiverse in school and having people look down on you, right, for not studying well. Yeah, but at the time, you don't know if it's because you are just stupid or it's because you're Asian or because you're too tall or because of this. Or, you know, there is a, or because I had a Flemish accent or because I was not using the proper French word. You know, you never know why. Right, right. So, and yet, despite all of these things, you have brought so much joy into your work. I just love the way that you're, you know, you mentioned that you want to take the shortest route, you know, to show people. And your work is so powerful, which is why we want to include it in the book. And also just such generosity. Living in Korea, like I remember you, you would just host people. Like if people needed a place to be, you would just let them be. So many times it's like we had to pick up adoptees so drunk in the street. Yeah, yeah. And I think I think I remember like one of the first times that I I met you, you just brought me some socks. Like you just gave me socks, which is so nice. And I I just feel like through through all of this hardship, your spirit just shines through and you just keep giving to people on a personal level and also with your artwork that we can see and we can relate to and we can understand the situation instantly. And I saw also your your writing is great. I really appreciate your writing. I saw last year for um, Adoption Day, there was another conference in Korea and you contributed to that. And I just appreciate so much how you just get to the point. You guys had asked about like how, how this book came together. So I wrote Language of Blood. I guess I was, let's see, it was published in 2003. And at that time, my publisher sent me on a book tour. And so everywhere I would go, I would see these faces in the audience of these book readings. And some of them were Korean. It's like, okay, I understand why you're here. And then I see some white people. It's like, okay, I get why you're here. And then there would be all of these other people. And I didn't really, I would be confused. And then after, after the reading, like people, you know, like you open up like a little corner of your heart and then other people feel like, oh, it's okay to open up this corner of my heart too. And so they would start talking and these book readings, I swear. So this is almost 20 years ago and it was a new thing to talk like 20 years ago. I feel like I'm talking to my students. Hey, Sogong students. It was 20 years ago it was a new thing <laughs> at the time. They would open up a corner of their heart and these book readings would go on for hours. I think like the longest one, it was like four hours because people would like testify and they would do this in the readings and they would do it at the table when I was signing books. And I find out that there were all of these other people who are transracially adopted, either internationally or domestically. And despite how we looked, we were all raised by white people. And I thought, well, isn't this interesting? Why don't we get something together? So I... You know, the first thing that you would do back in the day is search on Yahoo to find out, like, who else might be doing a similar project. And so at that time, um, Julia Chinari Opera 
had a similar call for submissions out and I was like, oh, well, she's already doing this. I better contact her and see what's up because it looked like the project hadn't reached completion yet. And so she, I contacted her and she said, um, yeah, I want to do this project, except for most of the people who are giving me submissions are Korean and I can't edit them because she was raised in the UK and her, her father was from Nigeria and her mother was from the UK. So she's like, I have all these Korean submissions. I don't know what to do with it. <laughs> so that's, that's how that happened. And then Sun Young Shin was a friend of mine from Minneapolis. And so we kind of, I mean, like I'm, I'm not a scholar at all, but Sun Young leans towards that. She's a poet and um, Julia Chinary Opera, definitely she's a respected scholar. So yeah, that's how it all came together. And what, what we really appreciated about the artwork, so Kimura, yours is right before um, Jaewon Kim's piece, was that we felt like you could just look at the artwork that precedes the scholarly paper and kind of instantly get a feeling for what the paper was going to be about, you know, because not all of us have long attention spans. So, so it's like, okay, let's, you know, like get to the emotion first. And then, and then we understand why this scholarly piece needs to be here. So we can understand it in two different ways. So you guys, I have to run out quick and I'll be back in about five minutes. I, I have presents from you. When we met in Washington, was it uh, in Odyssey? Huh? Yeah, yep. Where the um the Vietnam War memorial is actually for the veterans. I was so stoked to see that. I'd seen documentaries on it because it was um it's for the Vietnam veterans and it has everybody's name that lost their lives um, that were American soldiers during the war. And the architect it was open to a competition. The architect who won it was an Asian American, and the amount of racism that came out from that was um, very shocking and very sad. And um, so it's the, the fact that the piece itself stands there is such an interesting uh, symbolism of the tensions that exist between white America and, every, you know, the, and migrant America. First Nations, I'm really, um, you know, interested as well in, like, you know, their relationship to settlers, like Vietnamese refugees and adoptees as well, and what sort of connections um, and conversations are happening in the United States. And certainly with the, the veteran memorial, I was just so excited to go and see it in person. And it was such an emotional time for me because, you know, there are, there are veterans that visit there. There are the families of people that have lost people. Everyone's very solemn and emotional. But it's also a very, um, there's not many Vietnamese people there. So you kind of feel like, am I allowed to be in this space or am I upsetting and traumatizing people by my presence? Are they hostile towards me? Do they even notice that I'm here? So such an intense um, experience. And I've heard from a lot of other Vietnamese adoptees as well when they go there that they, they have so many emotions because on the one hand, um, a lot of them are Amerasians. So, you know, their fathers were American soldiers and they feel a connection to this wall very, very personally and for others because you know, some are legitimately um, lost family during the war and they have this tension between, you know, forgiveness, I guess, forgiveness and compassion and the anguish of losing family through um, the American, you know, conflict. You know, there's, there's so many stories that we could tell from so many angles about the Vietnam War and it's important to understand all of them, to understand what it is to be a Vietnamese person overseas and also an adoptee. 
but yeah, I remember seeing this wall and just being so moved and just feeling really quite, you know, uh, when you, you know, when you see something and you almost go silent, like you can't speak for the rest of the day because it's just sort of knocks the air out of you. And then just having a really cool time with the adoptees and everybody in the hotel afterwards, like, woo, you know, like a safe space again. It's like, oh my gosh, I'm with my people. So that was a, um, I'm sure it's the same for everybody when you go to see memorials. I don't know, are there like Korean war memorials and stuff in the places where you've lived? Is it a thing? People really love, um, the American War had so many movies as well, like the Vietnam War. It's very hard to get away from it in a sense. They're still making them now. You know, every year there's some big documentary like the Kevin Burns one and uh, Spike Lee had one. I think a uh, uh, Belgian veteran from the Korean War and they became extra in my film. Oh. <laughs> and then uh, my actress and I, we were saying, they kill our mother maybe. Yeah. You know, and they were smiling at us and said, we know your people and so And we were like, we were mixed feeling because uh, they were so nice to us because they recognized Abram face and maybe that's a kind of nostalgia for them. But in the same time, we, we, I mean, for me, I was adopted as a mixed race person, even I'm not uh, white uh, Asian, but I'm Japanese Korean. But it's like, it was really a weird feeling to, but I filmed them. And they became part of my film anyways. <laughs> so, but uh, there, there is a once a year um, a commemoration of uh, the Korean War. But I don't know if in DC they have also a Korean War. But also we, we are uh, kind of part from the Korean War also like, you know, 50-53. After six, 70 years, we still, uh, I mean, more now. Yeah, 70 years. Yeah, I'm really. I'm. I'm just looking at the list of authors that we have from that book. There's so many friends and amazing, amazingly impressive people like um, Kim Park Nelson, Sandra Whitehawk, Brian Tawara. Uh, like you know, a lot of friends too. Like Brian sends me cute animal videos and pictures once a week. <laughs> like, wow! <laughs> like you know, he's um Lao Laoshan adoptee. I'm Vietnamese, but maybe it's a Southeast Asian <laughs> thing for cute animals or something. But it's also laughing, or we'll cry because we're you know we're all sort of like joined by um you know heavy heavy circumstances. Shannon Gibney, uh, Jayran Kim, of course, and Al Colby. Laura Briggs is a really interesting scholar. She's not an adoptee, but definitely an amazingly um subversive, pivotal voice in adoption studies. Tracy Moffat's an Indigenous First Nations. Oh, yeah, of course. I love her. Oh, yeah. But, yeah, there's um, John Rabel, Suna, uh, Sunny Joe, Sunny Joe. Andrew O'Cold yep. also. Yeah, amazing. Always really striking work. They're, they're really um, interesting artists. They take a lot of photographs of um, community, the um, people of colour in the United States just living their lives as well. So I think for all of us, we do, a, we do write about and do artwork about adoption, but we're, we do more than that. Yeah, it's really nice to reflect on both our adoption work and work beyond that. Um, now I'm, uh, I'm part of a Korean adoptee group for Adoptees Ride and trying to uh, have a conversation with domestic Korean adoptees. But I'm, uh, I think I'm more of an observer than really uh, being uh, active because I'm like dislocated. I'm, I'm, in, I'm in Montreal alone here. Um, but I, I like to listen to the conversation they have so I keep informed about the situations and the changes. But I think for me, 
I mean, I did my, my activist work with the visa and uh, the right to search for birth mother, for women to get the family register of their own. So it was three things that we really worked hard at the time when I was there. But then I, I think, uh, I mean, I had to pass on the new generation with new, like uh, I think the next generation uh, worked on the double citizenship, Korean adoptees and also uh, birth mother rights. Because Korea didn't sign the Den Haag uh, uh, Convention, uh, they didn't uh, respect the, the, the rules of international adoption. But I think Vietnam signed before. Um, only recently. Yeah, and I think you know, the, the fact they didn't want to sign is because they want to do trafficking. It make, yeah, it's sort of, um, they did sign it actually, um, but it's effective from December 2020. Oh, wow, only. Oh my god. There's been a lot of times that adoption's been halted in Vietnam because of trafficking accusations and uh, various countries will engage and not engage. Is there also a movement in uh, Australia about that? Because in France, they have an organization, a group of adoptees uh, accusing uh, illegal adoption. And more and more cases are and in the Netherlands also. Yeah, I think there's a lot of energy increasingly towards umbrella organizations like Adoptee Rights, Adoptee Citizen Rights in the US to support sort of more of a blanket approach to um, looking at, say, issues of deportation. Yeah, I think there's literally only been one successful case of Vietnamese parents legally challenging adoption and getting their child back. So that was in a a different book chapter that I I co-wrote with um, Patricia Fronick and Denise Cuthbert um, in 2015. So things might have changed since then, but it's it's very complicated. And adoptions from Vietnam halted, they stopped completely from Australia after 1975. Oh, okay. So you have to live in Vietnam for two years before you can adopt a child from Vietnam, and very few people are going to do that. So it's it's very, very rare. And um, Tobias Hubernet, he almost, he wrote about this saying that there's certain generations of adoptees that are like going to that they're the experience once they die, their culture and legacies, you know, going with them. So uh, in Australia, Vietnamese adoptees as a population, Australian Vietnamese adoptees, yeah, you know, we, we're it. <laughs> we don't have elders, and we don't have a next generation in a, in this country to uh, pass our history to. But we do overseas, so in America and France and. You know, the Nordic countries, yes, you know, there are new generations of Vietnamese adoptees. So the, there's not much political movement because of that. And the numbers are quite small for mobilization. It's, um, it's not going to be as, you know, easy to gather numbers to make it a significant protest or civil action or whatever they decide. But, um, you know, things come around in circles and different cases inspire other people to do things and definitely with um, the use of Agent Orange in Vietnam and the health effects of that, you know, we're very carefully watching what the Vietnamese community are doing about that because it affects our community too. You know, the the chemicals that they use during the Vietnam War can't discern between adoptees and people that aren't adopted. So always just trying to look broadly in our community. But such a good question. Yeah, I didn't I didn't know all this stuff happened. Like all I saw was the faces 
and met the people who came to those book readings. And then we put the call out. And I think none of us had any idea that all of this was happening. And um, it was it was like the most depressing year of my life editing this book. I had a I had a folding table out in my house and it was just piled full of all these submissions. And it was just like a table full of trauma. <laughs> It was so hard. And there were some pieces that um, I read that it, it was just, I mean, like I knew about Tobias already, but then he submitted that piece and it was just like all of history piling in, piling on top of you at the same time. Cause like he talks about like the whole history of like forced child migration. I, actually it was in his thesis. He talked about Korea's sort of habit of giving human gifts to greater countries, which was just devastating. You just like, you know, that little piece and it's just, oh, devastating to find out about and you know then I was searching around and I found the the pictures of the Indian boarding schools and and you could it, we could just like see how everything was all related and that humans keep doing this to children and I was just like so filled with a like, grief and anger um but like we have to know these things otherwise we keep we keep repeating it but that's um I guess you know like for people who are working with the community there's still so much work that needs to be done, still so much. And it's really important. And the emotional toll is high, right, of doing that work. Yeah, I mean, it's um, something that somebody said to me in various ways was that um, we can all make a difference and change will happen, but it doesn't have, it won't all happen at once. It's like the hair ad or something like, you know, but like that rush to have everything done and be productive all the time, <clears throat> again, is a structural thing. You know, we come from different cultures, but I think there's this emphasis that you've always got to be at it 24-7 and on the grind and doing things where, in fact, rest is political, you know, and particularly for people of colour and various um, marginalised people, we have to struggle for that time out to rest because we have to work twice as hard. We always have to be 10 times better than, you know, the mainstream societies that we're placed in. So I think it's really important to have these conversations about needing time out, needing to pause, knowing that that's actually strengthening your commitments to what you do in the long run. And also that we owe nothing. We, we shouldn't feel obligated in the sense to perform the way that other people can that have had less trauma. We have our own cultures. We're adoptees. We have particular traumas and we have sensitivities that we hopefully can safely have these conversations with, but also approach in our work. I remember doing this book I'd literally just had a baby and I remember declining, saying I can't do it. Like I, I don't have the capacity and I, I don't sleep at night and it's such a, you know, and I was doing a PhD and working and all these things. <clears throat> and um, Son Yun Shin really saying like, you know, like it's something that we can work with and that your voice, you know, if you can do this, you know, it'd be really great, but, um, you know, see what, how you feel. And But somehow she convinced me that there was a space to do this and we could do this. So I'm really always very grateful to even be in this book because of how much I was going to, I was really going to turn it down and say, no, I just can't do it. And, um, you know, it, it, it was only through community and the power of community that I was able to do it and um, cope with what was going through because I just had a child myself and for an adoptee, having a child brings back so many deep questions yourself. It was nice to, not nice, but it's it's very healing and very important to hear about how this book took you off your feet and it wasn't a nice experience 
wasn't a joyful experience. We're not writing about joy. We can do that too in another book maybe, but you know, you're literally trying to make that door open to have these really, really complex, difficult, traumatic conversations and that we are good at compartmentalizing, but we're not superhuman and we don't need to be. So thank you for opening that conversation and letting us remember that what we're doing is a lot of emotional labor, a lot of trauma and a lot of other things as well as uh, being for community. Wow, Indigo, it's so super validating to talk with you. <laughs> Can I pay you for therapy? Yeah, I'm available. <laughs> not, not in the same time zone, but why not? But yeah, I guess that's, that's kind of the thing like adoptees say about this book is that like they can see themselves reflected in it. Although we're talking about really horrible things, that in itself is really validating. <laughs> what, what, I mean, maybe the process for artists is different because for writers, we, we project onto a screen normally and we can edit and delete and save and we have various processes to feel distanced from our work. Like I can close my laptop and walk away for the day um, or put away my book, but um, I'm not sure um, with an artist how you can walk away, what's the process of taking a break, that self-care zone or time-out zone? Like, How do you pause if you're you know, always creatively thinking about things? Is there a turn-off point or is that too hard? How do you, how do you rest, Kamira? How do you, how do you take a, a rest from thinking about what you're thinking when you are a visual artist? I watch uh, a lot of things, different kind of things. I don't like horror movies. I like to watch documentaries or, but for me, it's like I, um, as maybe as Parker, I take a lot of picture and, and I take a lot of, um, elements that can uh, be used for my work later. It's often during the night that I have a vision. And then I say, oh, I can put the recording that I did, uh, in, in the market. And, uh, I heard that woman talking about gender with her daughter. And then I have this uh, waterfall from Niagara, and I think it's going to be look good with that if I put a, a, a filter or whatever, and then dramatize with the background background sound of my cat. And this is all puzzle images and sound that I, I put in my film. Because I think with the anti-Asian sentiment that we, we did for the last year and a half, for me, as an androgynous androgyn, androgyn, uh, looking, uh, being queer, I, I stay home a lot. And I didn't have to go out because I'm an artist and I got grants from Canada Council. So I didn't have to work. I, I, I don't work. Normally. I mean, I don't, I don't work. I don't go to an office. I don't teach. I have no... A gallery representing me, so I have no attachment. I'm a pure Buddhist. I have no kids, I have no wife, I have no husband, I have just a cat. And the cat can go away, it's okay, it's fine. We'd be adopted by someone else or something. But I mean, I don't have much attachment, and um, so I re I'm really free to just. I have few friends, but I can meet them through Facebook. I don't need to meet them. But in Canada, there is something that kind of bugs me. They like to hug. <laughs> People like to hug here. And, and that's why the confinement, confinement was very good because I said, ah, I cannot because COVID. <laughs> so it, it was really good. But um, the thing is, like, I could stay home the whole time because I, I went a few times outside 
and then I get attacked, I get spit on. So it's like, a, and of course, it's not because I'm an adoptee, it's because I'm Asian. And there it's really clear. And also they are francophone, often like uh, either mental health or like they maybe lower level of education. I don't know, it's like a combo. But um, so more you go east to Montreal, more is poor and, and francophone. More you go west, it's uh, anglophone. So for me, I now try to go more on the anglophone part because the francophone are maybe too, uh, for me, edgy and aggressive. It's like all this kind of situation bring me to new kind of reflection and idea to work on art. And I, I made some performances through Zoom about racism using all archive from French uh, media from the 60s about racism uh, toward Asians. So I, I, I look a lot of information to uh, nourish my purpose. During the pandemic, I was very much more uh, involved with the interracial adoptees in Montreal. There is a group called uh, RISE. Uh, it's a, a network for uh, interracial adoptees in Montreal for francophone. And then there is another one called Libride. And they combine for once to make some Zoom meetings with adoptees talking about their issues. And many Asian adoptees realized they were Asian because of this pandemic. And they couldn't deny anymore. And then so many trauma came back to them. So I, I gave some speech about that and talking that it was ingrained or it was uh, maybe many microaggressions they had uh, growing up. They couldn't really express it. And now it's come back to them and it become harder to deal with that as an adult. And so it's those kind of stuff I did during the pandemic. And I tried to uh, have a balance between art and uh, community and also queer community. But then I very little sleep, but it's good because I'm always like, something is in my head, but not negative. Well, I, I just wanted to first say, like, you, you're such, you're so amazing because you have all these different identities that you carry. And I was really hoping that, I mean, like, I know that you were just like sick of Korea when you left. No, I was not sick of Korea. I was not safe in Korea. Because I've been attacked because I was lesbian officially, but I think I'm more queer than really lesbian. Because for me, I think at the end, the body doesn't really matter, but it's more like sapio-sexual or something, we call that. But, um, but I think because I look like, too much like a man in Korea, and it was a very, you know, Korean can drink so much, and they don't care, they don't take responsibility. So that's why. After this, uh, the third time I've been attacked in, in Korea, uh, I think I got in. Uh, and I lost two jobs because of uh, they knew I was queer. Because I wrote my book in 2000, you know, 45% Korean, they called 55% Korean. I said, I'm not 55% Korean, I'm 45 maybe, but no more. <laughs> and then they changed in the last minute. They said, what the heck? Yeah, and uh, because for me, it's like I would stay in Korea. I mean, it's my home. For me, I feel it's my home. And if I can go to Japan, like it's, it's closer to go to Japan. So when I was a bit tired of Korea, I could go to Japan. And it, I, I miss to be around 
whatever my people can control. But I think my people is more adoptive, interracial adoptive. It's like people who've been people from the diaspora also. Oh, I'm so sorry that happened. I mean, like, where, wherever you go, you're attacked. Yeah, and I think because that body is like, uh, what can I change? It's like, pretend that I, I don't want to be a travesty because uh, dressing like a girl, because it's really not me and I, I look funny, like I look like a clown. And, you know, so I, I mean, my body is politic. Being outside, being however I am, and they don't like, okay, but now I learn how to navigate in, in society. So, like, example, when I go in the subway, I, I always know where is the exit. I, I put my back against a wall so I know that no, nobody will go behind me the way that I walk. And, and there's so many things that I think many people who, who live, like, uh, in danger, kind of, like, uh, I heard many uh, autochthon in First Nation in, in in Canada, they talk about this kind of safety measure to survive in society. And I think that is also in some ways, it's like if your body is not like uh, as people want, it's so always a source of attack or bad energy that people will put on you, and microaggression that piles up and then you get so tired of it. It's been, yeah, it's very hard in Australia with the anti-Asian, like people spitting on us and yelling at us and when I was teaching some people walking by and yeah they some people yelled out coronavirus through the door at me while I was teaching students and then I said did you call me coronavirus and they said yeah coronavirus at me like they had to confirm it and laugh so um, there's all kinds of like levels of discrimination as an adoptee that must um, you know, I'm I'm not in your shoes, Kimura, but like just the the layers upon layers of things that you have to process as well as adoption, you know, is um just something we all need to be, you know, caring about amongst each other as well. I noticed there was like a panel recently, the intersectional lives of transgender adoptees that had um I was there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So Andy Mara Jingjiang is it? Pauline Park and Ryan Gustafsson, who's in Australia, the conversations there and how we create harm in our own communities as well as adoptees, sort of moving through these conversations is really, really vital. I'm I'm just, I mean, like I I read in the news that this kind of um, hate against Asian people is happening because of the pandemic. But, you know, I live in Korea, so I haven't experienced it firsthand. And it's just so shocking and it makes me so sad to hear that. You are experiencing that firsthand. But, uh, you know, I wonder, you know, it's like um, in Korea, uh, because it's all Asian, but like if uh, there is the Indian uh, variant, and then how Korean will react to South Asian people, maybe it's going to be that same racism that we live as uh, Asian here, you know, so racism is everywhere, so. Right, exactly. University students, it's really interesting, like the Korean university students are interested in racism and they think about racism as something that happens in Western countries against Asian people. And they're like, well, I've never experienced racism, but they're, they're very interested in what's happening with Asian people in the West right now because of the pandemic. And they view it as kind of like because they're Asian, they feel sort of like personally offended by it, I think. But also they, 
many of them have only lived in Korea and they are ethnic Korean and they've never experienced racism themselves, which is like really interesting to me. So I've been trying to encourage them because we do also have international students in our class to actually talk with the international students about the racism that they experience because they do because of the pandemic, right? It's also hard for them to connect because we're all doing classes over Zoom. Yeah, it's it's hard for them to do and I think sort of hard for them to conceptualize Korea as a racist place. And for sure, it's like the most white supremacist place I've ever been in. Like for having so few white people, it's so mega white supremacist. Yeah, I wasn't sure how Korean society deals with street harassment or just anti-discrimination in general. Is it is it put it under the carpet or is it confront and have laws? Um, well, there is an anti-discrimination law. People have advocated for this law for a long time, but it keeps getting slapped down by the Protestants. It's a law that would benefit everybody. So like the anti-discrimination law in which you should not be able to discriminate against anybody for any reason would help everybody, but the conservative Protestants in Korea are like super anti-gay, anti-queer, and they just, they want to continue discriminating. So whenever this law comes up for a vote, they block it. That's the power, I guess, of the Protestant church in Korea. They are more Christian than the United States is. But in Korea, they are very extremist for either way, one way or the other. In the book, Indigo, you talk a little bit about connecting with Vietnamese community and about language being a hardship, right? It was more like the language around identities in the United States, I think, has changed. And the inclusion of, say, um, Latinx and, you know, the evolution of language for you know, various political purposes. Um, with the Vietnamese language, there are adoptees that go and return and live in Vietnam and become fluent in Vietnamese language, which is really great. Uh, it's particularly difficult language for me to learn and some others it's got five different tones so you can say the same word in five different tones and it can mean five different things so um, even when I went over for a return trip one of my single friends was trying to learn how to say to women you have a beautiful smile and he was saying you have a beautiful ox cut so (laughs) (laughs) and he thought he was really charming and all of that but like you know um, what else successful so you know there's there's a there's various hurdles through colonialism that strip you of your culture and your language and there's a lot of solace in talking to um other communities that you know language is something that's hard so it's great that you know we're just aware that you don't necessarily become um you know you you may not be fluent in the language immediately you might need to work on it but yeah language is a, a a really important thing for younger adoptees, and I, I really hope that the generation coming through are more fluent and exposed and uh, pick up the language faster. But the ones that are joining Adopted Vietnamese International, the community group that I've run since 2020, seem to have the same kind of issues around language. So um, eventually we'll hopefully catch up with like the Korean adoptee movement that seems to um, you know, have uh, lessons for adoptees and so on and resources for them to connect with their original language. I can say I can't speak Vietnamese in Vietnamese. (laughs) (laughs) So that's what I learned as well. 
So is, is there any um, government support for adoptees who are returning to Vietnam to learn Vietnamese? I'm really glad that you asked that question about what the Vietnamese government, how it's trying to reach out to the Vietnamese adoptees. And we can, the only reason I'm glad that you asked that is that there's not much there, but I can highlight the work of a colleague of mine or a peer, uh, Linnell Long, um, who runs, she used to run, it was called the um, Intercountry Adoptee Support Network. It's now known as ICAV, Intercountry Adoptee Perspectives and Voices. And Linnell's work in adoption has been, for the past at least three years, making incredible steps for us. Uh, she's gone to the U, not the UN, she's gone to like, <laughs> sorry, the United Nations and the, uh, the Hague Convention. She's gone to all these places to try and look at the structural things that hold us back. And she's also written letters and met with Vietnamese officials to talk about the kind of things that I think Korean adoptees can take for granted but that we haven't got yet. So I think um, anyone interested in sort of listening to this and wanting to know where Vietnamese government is in terms of helping adoptees search and returning and all that, the work that's posted up by ICAV by Linnell is really invaluable. And she's been doing this work since 1998, but really in the past um, few years, you know, that's when I think it's been possible for the Vietnamese government to want to have these conversations with us. So it's a long journey to get the steps that we need. Is there any kind of feeling of collective guilt or anything on the Vietnamese side about the adoptions? Um, so the, the Vietnamese societies um, got very political. So the Vietnamese society and Vietnamese government is, you know, they've got various narratives and histories and things that they um, have in their perspective that can be quite different from overseas perspectives and for adoptees that's one of the biggest challenges for us is to translate and reconcile with the various perspectives on what happened during the war and the adoptees you know the the narratives are evolving to who's Vietnamese what kind of citizenship obligations do you have what kinds of loyalties to the state and to Vietnam do you have so uh, Vietnam is a very collective society it's not individualistic it sort of uh, is very much focused on a collective experience of healing as well. So, you know, sort of reuniting and, and what you can bring and give to Vietnam as opposed to the other way around, I think, for the most part. So a different psychology around adoption. And I don't think that um, I, I can't say, I can't speak because I haven't read many Vietnamese translated writings on adoption. But I think that the encouragement there to come back and give to Vietnamese society and give back to the Vietnamese people is the emphasis. And that's that's really interesting angle and understanding, understandable. May I have a question? Uh, because I know that Korean adoptees have this uh, group uh, about uh, DNA uh, for adoptees. And do you have also this sense of uh, an awareness for Vietnamese in the homeland? to uh, maybe share the DNA for to find uh, adoptees? Yeah, so there's um, such a great question. Thank you for raising it, um, Camila, is that the DNA is a game changer in Vietnamese adoption and searches. And there is an amazing Vietnamese-American adoptee called Trista Goldberg, who originally set up a DNA project for us, for, mainly for Amerasians as well. She does amazing work just trying to look at Amerasian connections and rights as well as adoptees. She's a Vietnamese adoptee too. And 
we do have a DNA project and also people are just using private companies as well to do DNA tests and get matches and um, the funding for Vietnamese mothers is the biggest challenge that that project has because most of the people um, in America and Australia and France and so on that are um, putting their DNA in can afford it from their side but trying to get the swabs and collect the DNA from Vietnamese mothers and uh, surviving relatives is the real challenge and that's something that Trista's been working on as well. Uh, the other thing is privacy and culture. So not everybody wants to, and I'm sure that, that we could look at the work of um, Jane's work in particular around single mothers as well. There's another layer of complexity with that. So um, there is the momentum there, uh, but it's not at a state level or at a national level where there's sort of, you know, big awareness campaigns over the DNA. It's very grassroots at this, at this stage, but it definitely exists, the DNA searching databases and projects. Are they, are they supported by the Korean government for Korean adoptees? No, no, I think we have to So it's unlikely that Korean mothers would, you know, necessarily be in the, in the database? It's more Korean adoptees searching? Well, well, so there's a police database, which is for missing children. If you're an adoptee, you can put your DNA in there. And in the embassies of Western countries where the Korean adoptees went, you may also submit your DNA to that database. So I'm not the authority on this. So I just please, listeners, forgive me for, for the mistakes that I will make. So they can, they can put their DNA there and then it can go into the police database. And the problem is that I think there is some restriction in Korea about who may put their DNA there on the searching side. I think for, for a lot of adoptees, it says that like you're abandoned outside the police station, you're abandoned outside the city hall, whatever. And so for those people who have no trace, they can directly put their DNA there. For people who seem to have something on their record that links them to a person, an actual person, it's not okay. For people like a birth mother who is searching, it's okay for her to submit to this database if she says that she had a missing child. But if they sort of confess to, like, I actually gave up my child for adoption through an adoption agency, then it would not be okay. Separately, um, there is the organiza organization 325 Camera, which is doing incredible work, and they are using private DNA databases and the way that they connect them, so they, they use some different kits. They they have used 23andMe, they've used um, Family Tree, I think it's called Family Tree. And then there is sort of like a third-party database where you can put in your raw data and it gets mixed around and they can match you, and that one's called GED Match. Um, the, the kits are funded by Thomas Park Clement, who is one of the first adoptees and who has been so generous to the adoptee community. He's really like big brother in so many ways to so many of us. So that is happening. And I have my own little dream for, for DNA in Korea. And I, I'm kind of having a problem convincing everybody that this should happen. But um, what my dream would be is that it would all go to the government. Okay, so here's the thing in Korea is that like there's a lot of old people, right? And 
old people living on islands and remote places and how are they ever going to get their DNA in there? How are they ever going to know about this? So I would really like it so that the DNA would be open for all people who are searching for a person who is say up to three degrees of relation from them. So like up to aunt and, aunt or uncle level. And then because we have this like really centralized government and, and Korea is a small country if at every um, police station or better yet, every community health center where every old person goes for their health checks, if they install a place for them to get to know about this program and then also do the DNA swab, then we have reached everybody in Korea. Yay. And then that would be their consent as well, because the problem with records, like where do I even start? But so like if your spit is in there, you must have consented, right? So one of the problems that we have is, you know, like maybe an adoptee can find a relative through the records, but then there's this extra step with the search process now where they have to get their consent. And usually what happens is they don't get a flat out no, they don't get a flat out yes, they get a no answer. And so this is interpreted as no. And then the problem is, is like, who did you get when they send the so-called telegram? Who did they even find at the end of this telegram? We don't even know who that is because the last step for all search is the DNA test anyway. So what can happen is that somebody can receive a no answer, which is no, or they can receive a no answer, a non-answer interpreted also as no, but this person might not even be the person they're looking for. So what that means mm -hmm. is that person's search is blocked. They don't even know that their genetic mother is out there and might still want to be reunited, reunited with them because they think that this other person who never consented to anything is actually their genetic mother. This is not to say that all forms of search should be blocked except for the DNA, but if you wanted to just get to the point, you would just do the DNA. We as international adoptees actually have a huge amount of privilege because we have come out and we've said things and we don't feel the stigma and shame I think that domestic adoptees feel about um, birth family search. And a lot of domestic adoptees are not even officially adopted because there was no paperwork, there was only trafficking. They cannot prove that they're adopted. And so how can they go to the police station and say, I'm an adoptee? They can't. And that they would be able to show, hey, I'm not related to anybody else on my family tree on my family register, this official paper. And there are many people who were, um, like my child's father was put in an orphanage. And of course, not everybody in the orphanage was adopted. Most of them weren't. But these people also don't know their roots. Why? Because the owner of this orphanage views all of this information as her property. I went with my child's father when we were there together. I went to Jaichen and lived there for a year. Because we're like, I was like, okay, I'm pregnant right now. I'm going to have a baby. I'm not going to be running around from Seoul to Jaytown all the time to do your family search. So let's just go live there. So we lived there. And at the time, the mayor was so touched by the story that he requested his staff to ask her for these records. And guess what? She still won't give them. Why? Okay, so, and then we met some of the orphans who grew up there because there was a um, petition that they made to the National Human Rights Commission because they were horribly abused. There and they had um, filed a petition against her or against that orphanage. So we, we met some of them and they also can't get their records. The reason she gives is because she doesn't, she doesn't want them to resent their parents. 
So like at this time, I realized there's so many people in Korea, not just adopt international adoptees, but domestic adoptees, people who have just been abandoned, like people like my biological sister, whose mother just left the family. She has no idea about her, her own mom. So many people who are separated, the only path is DNA. And so this again is like the, the rampant elevator path. So I was like, uh, I can't convince everybody about this or, or really anybody. So I guess I'll just go back to selling insurance. <laughs> but you know what? It's interesting. There's a microcosm of adoptees who live in Korea, right? There's this microcosm. And I kind of thought if I'm ever going to go out of this microcosm, I need to learn Korean. That's the only way out. So I learned enough to do some other things, but then I found out, wow, okay, so within the microcosm of foreigners, right, there's a microcosm of adoptees, but there's all kinds of very interesting stuff going on with all kinds of foreigners in Korea. And I sort of found this out through insurance. And there's so many um, ways to connect people and to be of service to people who are not just adopted in Korea, too. So I, I find that exciting. So I'm kind of getting energy out there. And then like maybe later on, I'll try to convince people about my grand DNA idea again. Kimura, I did want to ask you about the agencies and what you did with Paginsan, if you can share that, and how you learned to read this code on the records. I think you, you were like, well, if they wrote this, then it must mean this, you know, because it's not like a real code, but sort of like a way of speaking that you, or way of writing the records that you understood. For the search? Yeah. Okay, for me, it's like, obviously, I'm from Belgium, and I know the whole files, but because I get requests from all different kind of people, from uh, from Sweden, which is uh, SWS, and then I get some from the state, which is a KSS or Holt. I, I think the fact that I work on so many different cases, as you could see some of my files, I think you, you had them in hand for some time. So... With that, I could analyze all these kind of files and how different they were sometimes. And they had like some same tendency, some were like uh, relinquished, which is easier, but some were abandoned. But then the abandoned is like also when it's written RC is a reception center, but an adoptee will not know that it's a reception center, even though it's written abandoned. But it's not abandoned because reception center means it's relinquished, but not reported. So it's all this kind of stuff that I learned. It's like if someone said they were abandoned in the police station, and then we see, uh, example, uh, Nam De Moon, and then it was Tong De Moon police station, which it's very far away. So you have to know also that it was maybe a lie, or the, the kid was displaced. The, the layers of information we have in an adoption file is very important to read the whole thing. Uh, in a documentary with KSS, I think they were at KSS office and they say, oh, we don't want to give you the Korean translation of uh, your adoption paper in the adoption agency in Korea. And why? Because they write something else from what they translate and give to the uh, adoptive uh, families. So it's like, for me, it's always good to have the Korean translation and to be sure that it's the same translation. If not, sometimes they write different things and ask someone else to... Sometimes I, I went to an adoption agency with an adoptee. They had the file, it was uh, the other way around. The, the social worker had front of her, but she put on the desk. 
And then I could see the name of the birth mother. But they say we have nothing. But because the adoptee cannot read Korean, they don't know that they have just right there the name and uh, the, uh, the, the name of ID card. So the birthday, the year, the month, the day. And so for me, I just said, oh, okay, we don't have it. And then I wrote everything discreetly. And then we found the mother. And the mother wrote like for more than five years to uh, KSS to try to have information of her kids. And they say, no, we cannot because we don't want to disturb the adoptive family. And the adoptee never got the information from uh, the Korean Adoption Agency. Searching is so much, I mean, for me, I take it as a challenge, of course, but it's also, I want to go as far as we can. Most of adoptees, when they come to me, they say, I have nothing. And I say, no, you don't have nothing. You have stuff. Your whole adoption file is not everything. It's like, okay, it's the start for search. And so, as you know, it's like, then uh, you go, it's like a police report. And like, you have to go to the closest date to your birthday, the day that you were abandoned officially. And not when you were taken by the, the adoption agency. And many people think about the adoption agency, but they don't think when they were really abandoned. Sometimes it takes three years, sometimes it's a few months. I always want to see the file they have. And then from there, say what I believe, what we can go further, and what kind of search we can do, where to go. With your adoption code uh, number, you can know sometimes what adoption agency you're from also. So this kind of stuff, knowledge, I got uh, from uh, searching for more than, uh, I would say, 20 years. You know? Because I'm still helping adoptees now over internet, uh, over email. Some, some people um, through uh, Facebook, they ask me. So at the time that you showed me your boxes of files, you had done 600 searches, I think. More than, yeah. Wow. And at the time you were in Seoul, you showed me the spreadsheet that, that you had where you would make gray the names of the people who had committed suicide. Yeah, there are so many. It's not young people who commit suicide often. It's like people who are like 25, 30. It's like the time that they look for a job or like when they have maybe started a relationship or they get rejected or they don't know how to do in the society. It's not just when you're a student. It's, it's later. But Tobias Hubinet um, looked at the statistics in Sweden and he said that it's happening often during the holiday times. It's maybe when they feel lonely. Yeah, for me, it's like I, I always remember when I was maybe uh, 10 years old, even not, maybe seven. It's like in, in my school, there were like a family of two adoptees in a normal family, and they all commit suicide. The, the father, then the son, then after the mother, and after the daughter. And uh, in my uh, neighborhood, it was so many people uh, adopted to commit suicide. I think... My hometown, uh, uh, the city where I was adopted, is where uh, the adoption started uh, from Korea. The first, normally, they were Vietnamese, and because the Vietnamese children didn't come from Vietnam, they replaced with Korean. But the, the mother still have your, your Vietnamese baby will come, and she got a Korean baby. It's crazy. It's like uh, they replaced, like, and it was the adoption agency in uh, Belgium, Terre des Hommes. You have Terre des Hommes uh, in Belgium, you have in Swiss, you have in Germany. 
maybe in France, you know, and uh, they were like, I mean, the Belgian uh, Terre des Hommes branch was the worst one. They had a bank, a bank account in Switzerland, ah. so they had to close many from that adoption agency commits to some. But my generation of young, you know, John, yeah. uh, the Pomiel, we, we live so much hardship. Most of us, we, we, as, I mean, from people I know of my generation, I mean, when we meet, uh, and it was, that's why I think the first Korean Adoptee Association was really very healing for, for us to talk about all these uh, abuse issues. But after the generation who were adopted in the 80s or 90s were like better adopted. So we knew it was about screening the right parents and not just the money. I think that the generation of the 80s, later 80s and 90s, have a very different experience about the adoption. It's, it's so weird. And uh, for me, I, I, I still uh, am very close to two adoptees who were the first adoptees in Belgium. And we are all 50s. You know, we were all born in 68. And uh, it's like we are harmony. Like, you know, it's so weird. So I kind of wonder what you think about death. You know, as, as we talked about, we're kind of a, a dying species. And the, the people of our generation, I think, who, who grew up so um, isolated and abused, hopefully, hopefully, I mean, like, hopefully we're a dying species. Um, and then we've also been surrounded by death of all these suicides. So, like, how, how do you feel about it, like, your own death? Uh, for me, I thought I would die uh, this year anyway, so uh, not because of suicide. But I don't know, it's like I went to Fortune Teller and they said that they, I'm going to die at uh, 53. I'm 52 now, Western age. I mean, like, uh, 53 Korean age. So I have only one month uh, to, uh, to think about. Uh, so, um, but maybe the the idea or the concept of dying is maybe I'm gonna finally find my body as a trans person. So this maybe that way that I can interpret that. I, I thought a lot about uh, reproducing myself or not, but also because I'm an artist and financially not stable, I, I chose to not. For adoptees who have kids, it's like it's a continuation. It's like uh, the, the kids will bring the memory of your existence. I hope that uh, the next generation adoptees who maybe would like also to adopt from overseas, hopefully they will be better parents or like uh, thinking about the parentality as plural and not just so monogam or like poly uh, monoparental or like just one couple, one set, you know, to explored to enlarge the idea of uh, uh, raising a kid and uh, not being so uh, Christian or not so heteronormative. Because, like, example, in uh, Africa or other, like, communities uh, Afro-descendant, when they have a kid uh, that the mother is not, they, they just take over in the cousin and they don't say they do a great job, they just... It's natural they will take care of their kids and they don't need to adopt like the fact to possess something as an object. And so that, that mentality of a savior, and it's not only to white people. I mean, white people brought that concept, but I think is you can be Asian and especially Korean adoptees and have this white savior mentality also, you know. 
They say, do they need the help? Do they ask for help from you? Especially, it's, it's for your own uh, sanity sometimes also. It's to, for you to make feel better. And for me, it's like I prepare my death. And that's why I wanted to become a Canadian because I didn't want to die in Belgium. For me, it would be the worst ever failure in my life. So that's why I spent so much time to become Canadian. It took uh, 15 years. So last year I became Canadian. But now I'm sure that I can, uh, if I die, and that's why I didn't want to commit suicide before or die before because I, w- I wanted to be sure if I can. And I realized maybe five years ago or 10 years ago that I couldn't die in Korea. I couldn't be buried in Korea as a Korean adoptee foreigner not having the citizenship. That's what they told me. So I said, oh, I have to become Canadian and I will put all my energy to become Canadian because at least Canada is a neutral place that has nothing with my birth family or birth ancestor. So I can be free in Canada and die free. You know, It's not like dramatic. It's like uh, I had a good life. I, I experienced a lot. I want to share. I want to leave some stuff, archives and stuff. And then... You know, it's going to serve the community and uh, that I had my time and it's, it's not bad. You know, it's like, that's the way it is. <laughs> it's been a pleasure to speak with you. And um, yeah, thank you for all of the work that you have done in your life to lay the groundwork that makes my life here possible. And for connecting so many adoptees and doing so much work for search that has made so many people's reunion possible in our community. I thank you from the bottom of my heart. Yeah, but you too, you did a great job. So it's like you continue the work. And thank you for the, the, the second edition of uh, Outsider Reunions. Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much for your contribution to that. And Indigo, you contributed even while you were a new mother, which is like a crazy time also of no sleep. So good to have all these voices together. Ciao. Let me say thank you in Korean. Is it kam samida? Kam samida. Wow, kam samida.